1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture, medicine, and conservation with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. I'm a podcast host. I'm a professor, uh, keynote speaker, work on a farm, all these good things. And today I would like to end the seventh year of the Talking Biotech Podcast with an interesting set of circumstances. So over the last week, two stories have emerged in the popular press, one in Scientific American and another one on The Counter. And both of these articles share a remarkably parallel and strange theme. And so to discuss this with me today, I have uh, Cameron English. And Cameron is the Director of Biosciences at the American Council of Science and Health and also the co-host of the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast. So hey, welcome to the podcast, Cameron.
2: Hey, Kevin. It's exciting
1: to be on this side of
2: the microphone, so to speak, because in most cases I'm interviewing you or asking you to explain things that I don't understand and now it's it's sort of reverse sort of not quite but it's an interesting experience.
1: No it is. I like this. I I I was hoping we would do this one day and you wrote two really good articles on acsh.org this week that um, or acsh.org that talk about these two unusual stories. And before we start talking about them too much cuz we're going to be critical about them, I do want you to know that I I invited both of the authors to discuss these on the podcast with me and both declined. (laughs) So it it is a question, this is a usual kind of hit and run, you know, let's put this out there and stir the pot and then throw our hands up in the air and say, hey, we're just asking questions, right? So so let's start out by talking about the piece by Benjamin Cohen, um, decolonizing the GMO debate. What was the major thrust there that Cohen was presenting?
2: Right. Well, let me, I want to get into the article, but before we do that, I want to stress t- just two basic points. So when, when you see articles like this and they talk about decolonizing science or they talk about, in, his, in this case, decolonizing the GMO debate, they're they're starting with a theory called post-colonialism. And there's a lot of diversity in what people mean when they say that, but what you will hear advocates of this view say a lot is, science and rationality are are quote unquote Western ways of knowing. And their their big concern is that we're we're forcing our way of understanding the world and we're forcing our technology on them. And this is racist and this is unacceptable. Um, But the problem is this promotes a hyper skepticism of objective reality, or at least our ability to perceive it. And that's a big deal in science, because if you can't trust your mind to analyze what's going on in the world, you can't really do science, <laughs> so so the the problem is they're not approaching this and they're not saying, um, well, here's what the evidence shows: genetically engineered crops are harmful, or they're unsafe, or they don't work, whatever. They're basically challenging your ability to make a scientific argument because that's a Western way of thinking. So I hope I hope that makes sense, but we need to make that clear to people because um, I'm not here to critique them. I want ev- other people who aren't familiar with this to understand what we're talking about. So we need to be aware of the evidence and we need to be aware more importantly that they don't really care about it. I hope I hope that's clear before we get into the stories.
1: No that's that's perfectly clear and an excellent thing to say up front because what it what it basically says is the way we got here is wrong. And you know and, and I don't understand how you can ignore and that's the one thing in both these articles. They don't present any scientific evidence of um, that 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 really supports and builds their artic their um, argument. It, both of them are really a word salad. That first one on in the counter by Cohen. I've if a, if one of my students turned this into me, I would have handed it back and said, "Try again." I mean, it was. I mean, like this is not scholarly literature. I mean, I know it's it's written on a website, but I mean, this is this is really just just so poor and. It, it left me feeling so empty. The first thing I did was fire off an, uh, a, a note to the counter saying, can I counter this? <laughs> um, <laughs> I haven't heard back. Um, I also <laughs> invited Cohen to the podcast, as I mentioned before. Um, the other one was Scientific American, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, go ahead and let's talk a little bit about that Cohen article and some of the content within and some of the major points he presents Sure. So
2: let me just start with what I believe is the thesis of the article. I'm going to quote him directly because anytime you interact with literature like this, the authors of it or the advocates of it will always say you're misinterpreting us. You don't understand. Um, And to a a certain extent, that's deliberate, right? Because if they can do that, then they don't have to engage with what you're saying. So I want to quote him directly. He says, uh, by arguing that efficiency, quantity, and scale are the most important features of a food system, That's how you feed an ever-growing population, this argument goes. It rests comfortably on a century-old production-focused ideal that itself relies on colonial relations, export market metrics, and certain types of oppressive knowledge production. So to your point about word salad, there it is. (laughs) That's like a thousand island on that one. (laughs) yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's nonsense. And I think the, I guess it's not respectfully, had he come on the show, he would have ended up on the business end of a steamroller because that's indefensible. That's not, that doesn't make any sense. And I think that's why I started with that little explanation of post-colonialism. But I think my biggest problem with this argument, such as it is, is that producing more food means you can feed more people. That's just objectively true. (laughs) I don't, I don't know how else to say it, right? So if you want to shift the argument and you want to say, well, efficiency doesn't matter quantity isn't as important. You know, you're so obsessed with scale, you know, you, you Westerners and your, you know, your facts and your figures. But this isn't just an academic exercise. I mean, we're talking about people who are going hungry every day. And we're talking about farmers who want access to this technology. And we've talked about this on our other podcast, Kevin, that farmers want this, they will get this illegally. <laughs> they will cross the border uh, from their country to a neighboring state. They will get the seed or the seedling or whatever that whatever the crop is, and they will grow it, and they don't care. In, in, in India, when it came to um, Roundup Ready cotton, I believe it was, uh, the farmers planted the seed very publicly in protest, and they said, let the government arrest us. We don't care. So all, all that to say, production absolutely matters, and the people who are planting these crops know it matters, and they want it.
1: Well, you, you might be referring to the BT brinjal. That well, that too, more but... recent times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure about the Roundup Ready cotton thing in the, in the old days, but um, certainly the uh, Bangladesh brinjal, the, the eggplant that is resistant to be um, the fruit and shoot borer and the farmers there don't have to use as much pesticide. That's come across the border in droves by people who say, we want this because we don't want to spray. And uh, so the, these technologies, as you say, they have a way, the farmers want them they will get them. I've seen them. I've seen genetically engineered soybean planted in countries where it's not allowed and them using Roundup to, to grow it. So uh, it, it does get where it needs to go. So to your point, you know, it's a very good point.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely with, with Brindle, um in India with, with uh, herbicide tolerant cotton that I think that was in 2019 is when that first um exploded because they have access to the bt cotton but they don't have access to the stack trait which is insect and herbicide uh tolerant and they want both because weeds are a problem and so this is a very public protest and my point in bringing all that up is that people like cohen and some other individuals who we're not going to (laughs) name they they claim to speak for people on the other side of the world or they at least claim that that people like you and i kevin don't understand what those people need. And we're, again, we're forcing our way of life on them. This is clearly not the case. They clearly want access to this technology. And I frankly find that a little insulting myself, but also for these people. I mean, cause they're telling you we want this and you're going, well, you know, that's a, you know that's a Western way of knowing it's like, what, what nonsense is this?
1: Yeah. And somebody should tell the scientists in those countries. Because the scientists, like the best example I can think of, uh, which there's many, but in, uh, I've been in Uganda and I've stood underneath the ben- bacterial wilt resistant bananas, matoki bananas, and the uh, vitamin A enriched ones, or the beta carotene enriched ones that make pro vitamin A for blindness. And I've stood under those trees and the, the wilt ones were alive and beautiful and the control trees are dead. And it works. And then you go out in the field and you see the banana well and smallholder farmers who are, who literally, this is what they need for the year. And this is the money for their families to grow those bananas. And they're dying. The The scientists there have made these, they're behind a barbed wire fence. And to me, it was one of the most helpless feelings I've ever had to see a solution for a problem for people on the other side of the fence. And them not be able to get it, and for folks you know like Cohen and Montenegro and all the folks who write these things, they, I think they feel they they're calling this colonialism, trying to, Im- to impose a new technology or technological solution on small farmers. These are the the scientists in those countries who are producing a solution so that the people in their countries can have food. And, 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 they keep saying food justice, right? I mean, that keeps coming up in these and it seems to me that that is a huge injustice.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's an important point that you're stressing, which is that you have scientists in these countries who are doing this work and they know that it's for local farmers, you know, like there's no one in the United States that really cares about insect resistant cowpea, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a crop for farmers in Africa. And and perhaps it, it's it, it's based on technology that was originally developed in the West, but so what you know? And that's another point that I stressed in both articles is that what they describe as colonialism, I think, is more appropriately um, described as trade. You know, and and everybody in the in the United States, there are probably hundreds, maybe thousands of products that you use and consume every day that were that were engineered in other countries that were physically put together in other countries. And that's just what our global economy is. And it and it enables a standard of living that was unheard of 200 years ago. You know, we are so comfortable today and we don't even understand what makes that possible. And I think that's the same mistake we're seeing here. You know, it's like, to, like to call something like farmers in a, in a developing country, um, you know, to call that oppression or colonialism when they're just buying the seed, or in many cases, like with brinjal, I believe it was given away right. um, initially, and the same thing with with golden rice. You know, um, uh, Monsanto and Syngenta gave up their their intellectual property to let that project go forward, and the licenses on golden rice. All they say is this cannot be used for commercial purposes. It can't be used in in rice that's privately owned. Right? This isn't a for profit project. So, I mean, it's philanthropy in the truest sense of the word, I think. But <laughs> it, it, even just one more thing, even when it is a commercial thing, right? When Monsanto brings a new seed to market, they they have a market for it because farmers want it and they benefit from it. And I think we have to stress that over and over.
1: Yeah. I think um, I just wanted to jump in there because the, the article in Scientific American, which at this moment is unavailable, I, I wanted to pull it up on my screen so I had it for reference during our discussion here, but it says, Oh, it's temporarily down for maintenance. <laughs> so I, I have a feeling that a few letters to the editors, uh, maybe had maybe, uh, earned this thing some adjustments, um, as is, as been the case with a number of scientific American articles over the years. I mean, I can't believe what a dive that thing has taken. And we'll talk about that as we wrap up today. But, um, one of the things in the scientific American article, article it was this very complicated uh kind of con- every uh, conspiratorial like you know shoestrings or i'm sorry red yarn and uh corkboard you know uh associations that when the authors wrote well then there's golden rice and the reason it's bad is because it was licensed by syngenta <laughs> well, well, well wait a minute it, it, it that doesn't you're, they're disqualifying the utility of the invention because they didn't like the original inventor or, you know, right. or someone, or not even the original inventor. It was done by Ingo Potricus and, and uh, Peter Bayer and Bayer. And they didn't, um, uh, they weren't associated with those companies directly, in, you know, at, at the time. And they, Syngenta had some of the original patents on some of the technologies used. But as you mentioned, they waived that in order to produce this product. And so there, they're, but the authors make sure that anytime they can't argue against something with legitimate evidence that they kind of throw this bomb underneath the, the underneath its seat.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's absurd. Let me, and let me quote, this is the, again, this is what I would say is the thesis of the, the Siam article. And it's the same sort of, of, you know, pseudo academic speak. So they say at its base, GM crops are rooted in a colonial capitalist model of agriculture, based on theft of indigenous land and on exploiting farmers and food workers' labor, women's bodies, indigenous knowledge, and the web of life itself. I, I have no idea what, <laughs> what that what that means. You know, like like what does it mean to ex- to uh, exploit the web of life itself? It just it's it's like it's so broad that it's meaningless. Like, how do you, how do you say anything after dealing with something like that? You know, I'm I'm like, what, what point are you trying to make?
1: Well, that's why I would love to have them on because what it is, is it's that social justice warrior catch all, you know, look at you, you violated something, you know, you, you, whether it was indigenous, whatever, or women's bodies or the other things you mentioned, you know, the, the idea of academics and small companies and, uh, creating food solutions for people because we care for them and want them to have food security is none of those things. It's exactly the opposite. It's the anti GMO folks, the anti technology folks that disrespect indigenous people's desire for food security. The, um, the the women that want to feed their children that don't want to walk 10 kilometers to, to go get water or food or whatever. I mean, this they have it completely backwards. And the, the other other one that keeps coming up in this is like, it doesn't respect indigenous knowledge. And that just drives me crazy because this isn't an instead of, this isn't an addition to, and you can have indigenous knowledge. You The indigenous folks in different countries know what grows best in their, in their, in their space and they know how to do it. We're just giving them more tools.
2: Yeah, I I would just make one qualification to that. There isn't there isn't western knowledge, there isn't indigenous knowledge in in that there are different ways of knowing. Like like as a matter of epistemology, there's just knowing. <laughs> you know, so like if you if you live in a in a particular region, you you know how to grow in that region because you understand all of the variables but that isn't a different way of knowing that's just you having some local expertise and, and, in no way are you interfering with that. And this is, I think what you were getting at before in no way, are you interfering with indigenous knowledge, quote unquote, by saying, here's a better seed, you know, here's a seed that's engineered for the climate that, that uh, you know, that you grow in. And that's something that that's being worked on in a variety of different contexts, you know? So yeah, this, this idea that there's like some secret or special knowledge that we're violating. I just don't think that's true in any sense.
1: Well, I think what they're talking about is the indigenous ways that they, that the the traditional ways that people have farmed and the traditional crops that they've grown and that, and the way they do it and the, the traditions they hold that may or may not matter, you know, but the big thing is, is that as a scientist, Out of respect for people in the developing world and for their traditions, we got to realize that because of the actions of the industrialized world, and people argue with me on this, but I'll take this on too, because of actions of the industrialized world, we have imposed new problems in climate. We have imposed new problems in trade. We have imposed new constraints on the developing world that... We need to help. Find, we need if we care, we will give them solutions as well. And if I can say, you know, the climate is changing and we're seeing weather patterns change, that folks in indig- in um, the developing world see changes in temperature and salinity and lack of water. Can I please give them technology to work around those things? And and so this is why this argument really makes me mad as well. Yeah. Well, one thing to add to that and
2: in a lot of cases, the people who are taking this view we're critiquing they will lump everyone they're criticizing into a monolithic the west you know this is a western uh ploy to take over or recolonize the developing world in reality, Kevin, I don't think you've done anything to pollute Africa, have you? <laughs> you know like there are there are there's probably an argument to be made that there are companies or there are Governments throughout the last few hundred years that have done appalling things in the developing world, um, but you and I were not a part of that. So, so to say that because things were done that were tragic and and utterly evil and and unacceptable by somebody who maybe broadly is from what you might consider the West, that doesn't mean that researchers that are working over there or companies that are trying to do business over there are part of the same monolith. That doesn't make sense, and I think. Rhetorically, they do that on purpose, just to right. Do they want to demonize everything? I don't think that's correct.
1: Yeah, I think if anything, it's a uh, opportunity for the West to kind of atone for past sins here and try to make things right. And uh, and even though I, I appreciate the argument, you know, but if, if something was done wrong by the forefathers, it's good for us today. Well, even if there's not, let's just forget that whole argument. Is it the right thing to do to help people in need? And I believe it is. And so I I wish I could create tons of technology to help the folks that could use it. And so I would like to use my little platform here to try to straighten it out and and get it there. Let's take a break now and listen to Vern Blazek. Uh, This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're talking to Cameron English about two articles that appeared in the last week that were really unfairly critical of biotechnology and its applications. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment
3: there's a lot of talk about academic freedom, especially at one institution. Academic freedom is a promise that allows scholars to pursue research, teaching, and outreach in their area of expertise, immune from censorship or retaliation. In the case of the Talking Biotech podcast, some have interpreted this to mean that this podcast shall experience freedom from academic ties. Universities should be applauding the use of modern platforms to disseminate scientific knowledge in addition to the egghead journals and traditional media. However, this demonic vector of information was deemed unfit for the university outreach from which it came. In November of 2019, it was ordered to be shut down, forever. Other universities have offered to host and promote this popular outreach vehicle as their own, so we're grateful that some acknowledge the value of this podcast as an important conduit of science communications. However, it just didn't seem right to run to another institution to work an outreach around because we were not getting sufficient extension at home. So, as of early 2020, this podcast became an entirely independent, self-sustaining entity. Today, this podcast comes to you because it is performed as, in quotes, outside work. Every July, Fulta files paperwork to be allowed to create this dangerous vehicle on its own time his own dime. With a little love for those of you on Patreon, it's easy to see why this would not be welcome under a university's banner with such controversial topics as olive breeding, women in STEM, virus resistant cassava, and new ways to produce insulin. <laughs> So please remember that this podcast is not a product of the University of Florida and does not reflect the views of its faculty, staff, or students. But it is science, so it probably does. But we can't say it does, so it doesn't. It reflects the personal feelings of Dr. Kevin Folta, who believes that academic freedom shall not be infringed, unless threatened with disciplinary action or termination. And now back to the independent Talking Biotech Podcast.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're talking with Cameron English, and he's the biotech, or the biology, tell me what your title is again, (laughs)
2: Director of Biosciences. You're Director can call of me. Biosciences. Just call me Bubba if you want. That's fine. I don't really care about the title. So he's uh,
1: Bubba. You know, today I was I was driving my wife home in the in the bucket of a tractor. So. <laughs> <laughs> You might be a redneck. No, it's. Uh, I figured, you know, my neighbors are looking out and going, wow, they fit right in. Um, all right. So anyway, uh, you're the director of biosciences at the American Sci- American Council of Society for Soci- Science and Health. Gosh, I can't get anything right today, but it's the end of the year. So here we go. Um, so we're, we're talking about these two articles, one which occurred in the counter and one that was on Scientific American that both made parallel articles unusually parallel arguments and is this part of some do you feel that this is part of some coordinated campaign that since they've lost on the technology front and even cohen mentions genetic engineering probably will have a place in in the future of of uh the developing world's cropping um but since that that the the big activist arguments have been lost that this is kind of the last gasp to say to the developing world This is just them trying to control you again and then get all of the, I hate to say, woke folks over here to say, look, they're just trying to control the developing world. Uh, It's hard to know what people's
2: motivations are. Um, Like in these two cases, I don't, I don't know, you know, like the three authors involved in these stories that I was critiquing. I don't know their backgrounds in terms of, uh, you know, their involvement with the GMO debate. Um, but I think in a more general sense, it's absolutely true that the the anti-GMO groups have sort of glommed on to this uh, critical theory social justice movement, which which really became like culturally relevant in 2010. That's when it really started to get attention and started to influence our, our policy discussions on a whole variety of issues. But if you remember, Kevin, we critiqued uh, um, a speech Vandana Shiva gave at, uh, I think it was the University of Missouri or something, a couple months ago. Um, but during that speech she said um you know we need to get in we need to get in touch with everybody's truth you know we like we need to understand the truth of people on the other side of the world and 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 so on and so forth but but what she was doing is she's she's sort of adapting her message to this kind of social justice rhetoric where what's most important is someone's lived experience again right it's not about objective facts that we can all assess it's You know, indigenous knowledge and and the experience of different groups of people. So I think, in a roundabout way of answering your question, yes, I think they've they've sort of seen that this is a really powerful force culturally, and they're trying to use that to advance the same arguments they've been making for thirty plus years.
1: Okay, yeah, I could buy that. What's the deal with Scientific American, though? I mean, why would they allow this kind of the article says how biotech crops can crash and still never fail, which basically says that innovations and in technology is failing. Yet it's the promotion of this by Western interests and uh, you know the cheerleaders, as they as they tend to think of folks, um, that is really the story. And that really, if we switch to other types of uh, farming like agroecology, that everything would go just fine. And <laughs> and and so how does Scientific American, and that you know, and that the Green Revolution was a disaster, right? Uh, how did do, how does Scientific American let this kind of thing happen?
2: Oh, there's so much to say here. <laughs> um, I, I don't know exactly what the editors are thinking. I, I think, in a general sense, what's clear is that they have bought into the cultural zeitgeist, and 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 they've taken on a decidedly political tone in recent years. And I think once you do that on any issue, it's easier to do it on on more issues. And and on our other podcast, we talked a couple weeks ago about um, several articles that Scientific American published and that were very ferociously critiqued by uh, uh, biologist Jerry Coyne and uh, Michael Schirmer, who was the original publisher of Skeptic Magazine. And these were these were articles about you know why. Why math has to confront its racist past, and if you deny evolution, you're you're a white supremacist, you know. So like, I guess they've just sort of bought into this broader narrative that that you def- that you understand every issue in terms of racism and sexism and misogyny, and and once those those sort of assumptions guide everything you think, I think it's only natural that you would look at an issue like this and go, oh, okay, well we have to think of you know genetically engineered crops in terms of you know, how they affect our understanding of racism and our, our you, you know, like I, I just think it's sort of like a natural progression that you end up at a place like this. But I, I don't know what the editors are thinking. I can't get in their heads. And of course, as you made clear, they won't talk to us.
1: <laughs> well, and how damaging is that to science as a whole? Because Scientific American has a place in the lexicon of American scientific media. It, has a really important role. It's the thing that people grab as they're running to get on a plane. It's the cover that's in the newsstand on the New York City street where someone is sitting in a waiting room or you know, riding and in, in a subway all day. They'll pick that up because it's scientific American. It introduces you to a number of different topics from diverse scientific areas and gives you easy to read, but understandable and digestible nuggets that mean something and it make you more literate in what's happening in the world around us with science this is at least what it, its traditional role always was and over the last few years by admitting these opinion play uh, pieces to find a home under their under their masthead it really discredits the 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 art the magazine but also violates its place in the trusted Journalism that we use to convey science, and, and, and how much of a problem is that? It's enormous, and
2: I think this is definitely a pet issue for me. I know you're really passionate about it too, Kevin. The whole idea of communicating science—I think the biggest problem with this approach that they're taking to so many different scientific issues, or the way, that even the way they talk about racism and sexism in academia—those are important topics, and they need to be discussed. But This sort of this this woke approach, if you will, this kind of social justice approach. I think the problem is most Americans don't share these assumptions, right? They don't read about critical theory. They don't know what post-colonialism is because they have lives, they have kids, and they have jobs, and and like they don't have time to be obsessed with, you know, these weird theories about Bill Gates buying up farmland and trying to take over the food supply of Africa, all these goofy ideas, you know? So I think when people are exposed to a little bit of that, they go, well, this is ridiculous. I don't believe any of this, you know, and they start, they start to associate science and the scientific establishment more generally with these ideas. And then when the time comes to take a new vaccine or there's a new medication or, you know, we're, we're trying to, uh, boost the public's support for some scientific theory that's well established and there's plenty of examples of this they're they're going to grow even more skeptical and and they're going to start to say like well you know on this weird thing you're telling me I'm racist because I was born in America so I don't believe what you say about vaccines i think there's it's pretty easy to establish that that happens and that's the biggest threat i'm concerned about
1: and that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and I should clarify, I hate using the word, the term woke, unless we know what it means. And to me, I can define it by it's a seeking of social justice that goes too far. It, it, that it, it oversteps where, where we really are, and, which is important to me, and into this area where it starts to become problematic because it, 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 it starts to deal outside of reality and Scientific American threw E.O. Wilson under the bus today, and Gregor Mendel. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if you read those. <laughs> you know, I mean, it is unbelievable what's happening there. I almost feel like, like as a scientist, almost like calling for a boycott of Springer Nature, who are the major publishers, who are scientific publishers, who need to understand that this is part of their brand now. And if they're going to let this happen, that it's going to tarnish the entire sphere of scientific publishing, you know, so that's, that's the, that's, um, you know, I think that's really important. Uh, I think we're in for a lot of trouble if they, if they let this kind of trend just continue. And I'm glad you mentioned vaccination. If, and when we start seeing some vaccine justice and vaccinations reaching the developing world, do you think that Cohen and Montenegro and the other author, do you think that they will, um, say that this is just colonial technology, uh, technology from the West being imposed on, uh, you know, colonial Africa. Um, I mean, do you, I mean, do you see where I'm going here? That yeah. shouldn't we be respecting their indigenous knowledge and letting them heal the coronavirus on their own? Or, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, think about that for a second. I'm pissed off because we can't get vaccinations to the developing world fast enough. I think it's, it's, it's morally reprehensible, I think it's sick that I got three shots before somebody else got one. That's just the way I feel about it. Yet, I think in a parallel sense, these authors would feel as though that's my Western way of thinking, that that I need to be imposing my technology on these folks. Yeah,
2: I don't. I don't know. I actually use that as an example in my response to Cohen, because he says, he's got a section and he talks about fixing nature, and he says that GMO proponents... They have this technocratic version of reform, and they te- they treat nature as the other, as a separate sphere that needs to be fixed, so on and so forth. And this again, this is a Western market oriented way of looking at the world. Um, but and and I brought I brought in vaccines to just give this a different perspective, you know. So so what I said was, you know, did the Western market oriented humans at Pfizer and Moderna, you know, were they violating? nature by developing these vaccines that, that combat this virus, you know, and, and, you know, there are, there is, there is not enough vaccine to go around in the sense that we're not getting enough of it to developing countries, but the U S has donated millions and millions of doses of, uh, the COVID vaccines to different countries. And I don't think I've heard anyone that takes this perspective say that the vaccines are you know a violation of an indigenous way of knowing i think they properly recognize that that's absurd right you wouldn't during a pandemic especially you wouldn't say you know how dare you force your (laughs) your western vaccines on these people that's so racist and insensitive of you (laughs) i think everybody inherently recognizes how utterly stupid that is but but and we've talked about this previously kevin i think with food it's a little more abstract you know, like, like you can make claims about GMOs and, and, and Western agriculture and you can bash the Green Revolution because it's a little bit more removed. Like people understand, well, I take a vaccine so I don't get this virus that could kill me within weeks. <laughs> you know, that, that is very, very potent and it stands out to people. Um, but the food thing is just a little more obscure. And I think that's why they get away with it on this particular issue.
1: I think so. I think that's true. I I also think it's really strange how these articles, how both of them, uh, also kind of act in a vacuum, you know, that they kind of, especially the Cohen piece makes some big assumptions that just aren't the way that advocates for technology or agriculture, no matter what kind of agriculture it is, um, that we just don't believe. And all of this idea that it's a, um, you know, one single solution or that, you know, the science is settled and that it's either science or no science. It it creates these, um, false dichotomies that just aren't true. And I don't know anybody who is in, in, in the area of biotech communication or whatever, at least, you know, these days, who says this is a solution, to every single problem, and that, that the science is settled. What we say is that there's risks and benefits. And here's every gene and every uh, product has its own risks and benefits. And here they are. And now let's make a good decision. And it's the folks who are against the technology that are imposing their well-fed Western ways on the developing world. And it, it really just is such a it's so backwards when I read this. I, I just wish they would come on and talk about it because I really would like to try to understand where they're coming from.
2: Yeah. And I've heard um, several writers for the Cornell Alliance for Science, all people who like reporters who live in Africa or academics that live and work in Africa, um, they will talk about green neo-colo- neocolonialism. And they're talking about these these billionaire, these very wealthy foundations that give money to anti-GMO activist groups. Then they go into Africa and they start lobbying against this technology. And in some cases, they say things that are just utterly ridiculous. Like they'll say, you know, this, this, this GM crop will make you sterile and it causes this, this health issue or, you know, it's there they're, and and they will make the same argument. They'll say this, these colonizers, they're coming in to tell you how to live and so on and so forth, you know? Um, so that I think is a problem and you never hear people who are concerned about colonialism they never talk about that angle i find that interesting i like i don't i don't associate them with the anti-gmo movement in that sense directly but they never critique that and that's what i don't understand you know why presumably it's bad for you know progressives in america to to you know bring their ideas over to africa and force those upon people but they but they only seem to be concerned about um you know certain companies and certain technologies. And there's always kind of like an anti-capitalist mentality to this too. I I just don't understand why it's always like just one segment of the West that you don't want in Africa or in Asia. It doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Well, a lot of the poor farmers I've met in Africa would love to be capitalists. i so Would love to have a little capital to play with and have some security in a bigger program that allowed them to do more with less. And uh, uh, just reading through Cohen's work again, um, both of these articles mention um, do the uh, you know six degrees of Monsanto thing where they do uh, here's um, Cornell Alliance for Science that Cohen refers to as a Gates Foundation funded training center that brings people to Ithaca to learn how to advocate for GMOs in their home countries. There is almost nothing further from the truth. The Alliance for Science is a way that teaches, is is about teaching folks from different parts of the, the world how to communicate the strengths and weaknesses of technology and what it is and what it isn't, and when it's appropriate and what are the risks and how does it work. I mean, that's really what this is all about. And 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 they uh, and uh, the other one did the same thing. They they refer to these things. They keep connecting. They have to talk about Gates or Syngenta or Monsanto or whatever to disqualify or attempt to disqualify the good things that something like Cornell Alliance for Science does. And and both of them did that. They also do that around golden rice, you know, that the, they have to get to, you know, the, we mentioned this earlier. Oh, yeah, but it's some company that was behind it. Well, yeah, it, it really is a very weak way to make an argument and it really is super tired.
2: Yeah, there's so much that is ridiculous, ridiculous about it. I think, you know, on the funding issue... If you want to target the Alliance for Science, that's fine. They're a great organization. They do great work. I mean, they're over there on the other side of the world educating people, and they're trying to advocate for technology that helps people. So they do great work. But if you want to disparage them, okay, let's put them aside for a second. You can find probably thousands of academics that work in some field related to genetic engineering that will tell you the exact same thing. All of their research funding comes from the, the U.S. federal government, or it comes from some source that that these these activists would not find objectionable, and they will make the same arguments that we're making here. So I think that's a bit of a red herring to say that oh well, you know they, they they've got that that big Gates money coming in. You know it's like it, like that's stupid. That and again this goes to that the point that I made earlier that they're trying to disqualify everybody by associating them in this one big Western monolith and i i just think that's that's preposterous you know you have to look at what people are doing um, intentions are important don't get me wrong but you have to look at w- what work are they doing and what are the outcomes that's what's most important that we need to stay focused on
1: so all the authors really do kind of frame this in the area of food justice and social justice which to me are important constructs but well, how do you think about this where do you draw the lines between the things that we need to do to be responsible and moral and treat others correctly to, to seek relevant social justice and when it's just being thrown around in a word salad to push an agenda?
2: Yeah, I think, I think social justice is a valid concept, but I think there's a more universal definition of it that everyone can appreciate, you know? So if we can do things to feed more people, in impoverished country, countries, and we can give them tools that improve their standard of living so they can send their kids to school and they don't have to spend all day picking weeds or working on a farm. You know, I mean that's true social justice to me. And I think what what these these kind of authors do is they're they're couching a particular political ideology in language that everybody accepts, but they have different definitions. And so to that end, I would recommend people look into. Uh, critical theory and look into the social justice movement and and try to. It's really difficult because the academic language that they use and the scholarship that they've produced. It's it's hard to understand. But I would start with a really good book. It's called Cynical Theories, and it's by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, who are two excellent authors. And, and in recent years, they've they've sort of taken on this this effort to critique this critical theory stuff because they saw it creeping into science and they said, well, this is, this is really dangerous. This is undermining, undermining our ability to do science. And I believe they were part of that, that hoax a couple of years ago where they got a a bunch of uh, bogus articles published in these, in these uh, social studies journals. And they, they, they received all kinds of war awards and recognitions for this great work they had done. And in reality, they just got together And they made it up. They just, they just typed these papers up and it was total nonsense. And they got published in these top journals in this, you know, this critical theory studies stuff. And, and then they came out and they said, well, we made it all up. (laughs) So, so, I mean, just to give you a sense of the kind of academic rigor you're dealing with here, this is, that's what you're dealing with. But the book is called cynical theories. I highly recommend everybody read that just to get a sense of where these people are coming from.
1: Well, maybe the best thing to do is to ask the questions of what exactly do you mean when you're saying food justice? You know, I mean, maybe then throwing these term colonialism, instead of throwing these terms around, really, what, what is it exactly that they mean? And because that's the one problem that when I read these things, if I didn't know about the issues, I would probably buy into it. And I think that's what makes these more problematic But if people wanted to read your articles that really dissect these two articles, uh, where would they find them?
2: You can go to acsh.org. That's our website. And uh, you can see the articles there. They're on the homepage. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter. It's at acsh.org. And my website is cameronjenglish.net. You can find all my writing there as well.
1: And then you also do a weekly podcast. Uh, What is that about? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. There's this weird guy in Florida that I know, and we do this podcast about science. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. I'm sure a lot of you know, but Kevin and I co-host a podcast called the Science Facts and Fallacies Podcast, where we take three news stories from the previous week that have been in the headlines, and we just discuss them. So we, we outline what the articles are about, and then I throw technical questions at Kevin, and I say, what does this mean? I don't understand this. And the idea is to just help everybody understand the science of these different issues that we talk about every week.
1: And we usually have a pretty good time. It's pretty funny. And uh, it has been uh, entertaining. (laughs) And it also is um, a good opportunity to break down some of the really complex issues that we're going through from vaccines to vaccine denialism to new trends that are happening in diet and diet fads, and you name it, uh, new therapies, foods, cancer cures, all of these really important issues that come up in science. We break down three of them every week. And uh, it's, it's short, it's dense, and has a very good following, which is really cool. We get a lot of good feedback from that podcast. So uh, join us every week there with Science Facts and Fallacies, available where you consume podcast media. Mm-hmm. And uh, And where do they follow you? Oh, you already said at acsh.org on the Twitter
2: yeah yeah and my website net. I don't actually have any personal social media for my own uh, my own mental health <laughs> but <laughs> you can go to you can go to my website and uh, I will interact with you if you want to talk to me I just can't stand being around the, the cesspool that is Twitter these days
1: <laughs> well I, yeah it's it, it, that it is but you know it, it's, a nece- it's 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 a, an it's a necessity Necessary pool. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of how to work that in. It's a nece- ne- it's necessary cesspool. That's my new band, <laughs> right along with Skeptic Tank. Um, but. Uh, well, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, we appreciate every, every uh, comment, every thought. We appreciate that you download every week and tell your friends and tell others. It still is exciting to find somebody who will send me an email saying, I can't believe I just found this, and now I have 300 and some episodes to go through to get caught up. Um, I always think that makes me really happy. Uh, but spread the word. Um, there's a lot of media out there and we continue to grow despite the fact that you have more choices than you've ever had before in podcasts and in science media. So that's great. You're listening to this in 2022. So thanks for listening to us in 2021. And we'll talk to you next week.
3: The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Folta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.